the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved, who had lain close to his breast at supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. The saying spread abroad among the brethren that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As we continue to celebrate the Incarnation in the 12 days of Christmas, we find ourselves today smack in the middle of a series of feasts that at first glance may seem jarring next to the light and peace of Christmas Day. And yet, when we push past the cliches of Christmas, I think we'll find that these feasts illumine our minds to the truth of the Incarnation. Yesterday was the Feast of St. Stephen, proto-martyr and deacon of the church in Jerusalem. Today is the Feast of the Evangelist and Apostle St. John the Theologian. And tomorrow is the Feast of Holy Innocence, those infant boys murdered by the despot Herod as he sought to slay the Christ. The murderous rage of Herod shows us in a sort of photo-negative the crisis that Christmas precipitated in the lives of men like Saints Stephen and John. These men recognized that the Christmas message is totalizing, but it is not despotic. It's one that's easy to misapprehend because the message is Christ himself who is himself the embodiment of divine love and therefore non-coercive. No one forced Herod to exact murderous revenge on helpless babies. It was his own fear that drove him. No one forced Stephen to remain faithful to his master as the rocks pelted and tore at his skin. It was the fire of divine love that burned within him as he prayed that his killers be forgiven. Likewise, the torture and exile that St. John endured could have been sidestepped by him, but he had been gripped by something far more compelling than twinkle lights and family gatherings. So what was it that these men understood about Christmas? 
Herod, on the one hand, saw the world through the lens of brute power. He saw everything the way that he himself perceived his own self and his way in the world. It was about survival, instinct, fear, scarcity, and control. He understood that the birth of this new king was a challenge to his own tight-fisted power. The irony, of course, being that while Herod attempted to stave off his own diminishment in the wake of this rival king, he managed to oversee his own regression into something less recognizably human. Every time we meet him, he is making a worse decision and dehumanizing himself and the people around him. Saints John and Stephen, on the other hand, were transformed by divine love and their cooperation with it. And even as they were maimed and harmed, they became more and more human as they followed their master in the pathway of self-giving love. Both of these men, if you go back and read Stephen's sermon in Acts and read parts of John's letters and his gospel, both of these men, you'll see, understood Jesus as the fulfillment of a millennia-long story that God had been writing in and through the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And more than that, as we see in our lessons this evening, St. John understood Jesus to be the same God who revealed himself to Moses. St. John understood that the one person of Jesus is fully God and fully man, that the one on whom John had rested his head is the one in whom and through whom all things have been called into being. John also understood something about this very key that many of us tend to swipe past without thinking. When we, we, when we say things like, Jesus was fully God and fully man, we tend to assume that we know what God is and we know what a human being is. And mysteriously, somehow, Jesus is both of those things that we know what they are. But as John evinces in all of his writing, in his gospel account, in his epistles, and in the apocalypse, the revelation, Jesus reveals to us who God is and what it means to be a human being. John and Stephen both had their lives upended by Christ's incarnation because they stopped assuming that they knew what it meant to be human and tried to fit Jesus into that box, and instead they allowed Jesus to show them what it means to be human. One of the things that Jesus reveals to us from his, in, his incarnation onward is that he embraces the things that the rest of us tend to try to transcend or avoid. Jesus is born in anonymity. He lives nearly his entire life in hiddenness. He doesn't seek out the rich and the powerful or even the intellectually interesting or artistically talented as we so often do as a way of propping up our own sense of self-importance. Jesus loves the people around them, around him. He doesn't sexualize or exploit or manipulate them as we so often do. Jesus never confuses means with ends or the gifts with the gift giver. He doesn't engage in self-defense or self-protection, even in the face of a humiliating and painful public death. 
And this has massive implications for us because as John tells us in our epistle lesson, we have fellowship with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is an incredible statement with much to unpack, including the fact that we are now somehow bound up with the Christ who is in agony until the end of the world, as Pascal said. In some mysterious way, his agony is ours, and ours is his. The word that St. John uses here for fellowship is a very loaded New Testament word that carries the idea of participation, communion, sharing. This is the core of the Christian message that Christ has become man, that we might become the children of God, that we might be made partakers of the divine life, participants with God in the fellowship that exists in him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Eucharist is the engine room of this fellowship, this communion that we have with God. It is here that Christ feeds his church with himself, It is here that we are actually brought into his life. We no longer stand outside the cave of his birth or the cave of his burial, but we have been brought into a participation in his own life. The things that happened to him in the flesh are being made present to us in the Eucharist liturgy. The crisis of Christmas is a recognition that this participation this communion of which the Eucharist is a metonymy, right? It's, it's a part that represents the whole, the larger thing. The crisis is this recognition that the Eucharist and the fellowship that we have with God is either everything or else it's meaningless. But what it cannot ever be is an extracurricular or a lifestyle add-on, a thing to do when the mood strikes or the calendar permits. Christ calls each one of us without coercion that we might come to taste and see that the Lord is good. Christ is born and the demons shudder. Christ is born and the angelic hosts rejoice in song. Christ is born and the new creation bursts forth. Christ is born and kings and shepherds pay him homage. Christ is born and his light shines in the darkness. Christ is born. Glorify him. Amen.